It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Recorded live. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. Although I am rolling solo tonight, it's Travis. And I'm going to get right into it because this show is, let's see, 15 months in the making, February of last year is when I first hit him up. Um, and he's a busy man, as well he should be, because he puts out quality every time he uh, steps up to the plate. It's John Borowski. How's it going, John? Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing absolutely awesome, considering you're here, and and we're going to get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, and I don't mean that in a weird way, but you've run across some interesting characters in your travels, and uh, of course we're talking about serial killers, the subject of, like, the fanaticism of serial killers. There's a lot of it out there, and I, I always thought it was cool that you did an entire documentary about that. I guess that's where we'll start. How do you get into that subject as far as, you know, documentary filmmaking? What what kind of, you know, pushed you that way? Well, for me, it was, uh, I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, that I've interviewed also in serial killer culture, it kind of goes back to a love of horror films. You know, I mean, that was the beginning of it. You know, obviously, you know, the uh, serial killer is kind of like, you know, our, our modern you know, vampire monster. Because even if you look back in time, Vlad the Impaler, you know, was the basis for Dracula. And, you know, a lot of those early universal horror films were, you know, steeped in true stories. You know, uh, body, uh, corpse uh, stealing, Frankenstein, you know, things like that. So, you know, and and when I was younger, my sister got me started on, uh, you know, those universal horror films. So, you know, I had a great diet of, you know, all the classic horror films. And then when I became a teenager, it turned into, you know, uh, the slasher films and, you know, the 70s and 80s stuff. And, you know, so that was kind of where it began. That was my love. I've always had a love of creepy, scary horror films. You know, that uh, the macabre, dark stuff. And, you know, when people meet me, they're like, wow, you're totally opposite of that because, you know, I'm not, you would never think that, you know, by meeting me or, or seeing me. But, you know, that's where my interests lie. So, then when I was in high school, I started to do special makeup with a friend of mine, and his father was a detective at the time Dahmer was arrested. You know, when I had kind of a, a small awareness of serial killers, you know, I mean, I kind of had, had known that Ed Gein influenced Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, uh, you know, but, but here was a, a living cannibal, Jeffrey Dahmer. So my friend and I, you know, went to his place and he had gotten into his father's office and said, look what I found. And he thought it was a mask catalog at first because, you know, these mask catalogs have all these decapitated heads and masks. Well, it was the Dahmer file with his confession and photocopies of the photographs that he had taken of the heads on the sink, the heads in the fridge and body parts, you know, so that made such an impression on me that, when I eventually went to college, I did a short film called State of Mind that's on YouTube, and it all kind of, you know, spiraled out of control from there, really. I was 
doing a history report in college, and I heard about the castle of H.H. Holmes, the murder hotel, and that fascinated me. But then when I delved more into Holmes' life, and I thought, wow, his entire life was fascinating, you know, how he grew up, and he was his own attorney at his trial, and how he had a family and three wives and mistresses, and I thought, wow, this was like an evil genius. So that's, you know, what compelled me to to begin, and H.H. Holmes was the first, you know, film I had done ever, and it was on a serial killer. And it was an excellent film. Let me just say that was the first one of yours that I had watched, and, and I really liked it. Um, R.I.P. to the narrator. He did a hell of a job. Let me just say that you did a great job on casting in that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, if Vincent Price were alive, I wanted him, you know. So, actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, the backstory was I had tried for two different voiceover talents, James Earl Jones and Tony J. James Earl Jones' agent turned me down, and I was a little, you know, depressed about that. But then, you know, the next day I got a call from Tony J's agent, and they said, sure, no problem. You know, and, and his agent was hesitant at first. She said, well, you've done all these Disney films and animation you know, are you worried about this and what, you know, what, you know, people might look at you as he said, no, it's my job. You know, I mean, that was his job as a voiceover artist and narrator. And we came, became good friends, you know, and of course he had, uh, you know, also uh, recorded the voice for Albert Fish. But yeah, you know, he was great. And and Holmes was a great experience. You know, uh, you know, my first film was shot with the first ever digital video camera, the VX 1000, and it still has traction, you know, and now there's this DiCaprio movie that's coming out and it's, uh, you know, I think it's a story that people will be eternally fascinated by, you know, the time period, the Victorian time period, you know, how so many women were enamored by H.H. Holmes and how he got away with it because of the time period. It's just a fascinating story. It is, absolutely. In fact, uh, three of your major uh, documentaries that you did, Pan's Ram, H.H. Holmes, Albert Fish, unless you're like, unless you follow, you know, kind of these serial killer histories, maybe you haven't heard of these people. Like my wife had never heard of any of the three of them until I introduced her to these documentaries. And so um, what is it, and you talked about Holmes a little bit, but what is it specifically that made you want to go with these guys as far as the documentary, as opposed to say a Gacy or a Bundy or a Dahmer? Is it just the fact that it, it, it was, you know, something that people had not done before? Yeah, I think that was it. You know, the number one, the market was so saturated because, you know, you look in the history of serial killers, obviously the beginning of mass media and the printing press, you know, uh, made Jack the Ripper a celebrity. So, and then as you move forward in time, the handheld video units, you know, coming into play in the 60s and 70s, then you've got Gacy and Manson, even though he's not a serial killer, but he's kind of lumped in because of, you know, everything that went on. But, you know, he is a celebrity, you know, in, in that sense, of course. But, you know, and then you hear about Speck, and, you know, he was kind of more of a mass murderer too. But all these things, you hear about them at that time period, and they've done TV shows on them, documentaries, movies. And, you know, I, I you know, when I, of course, heard about Dahmer, I went, wanted to make a film on him, and I still do maybe in the future. But, you know, to me, I thought, wow, you know, I always, again, I had that love of those universal horror films, and those were all you know, done in, in, you know, between like 30, early 1930s and, you know, you know, until they became the giant uh, bug movies of the 50s, you know, with the atom bombs, but especially like 30s and 40s, those creepy old, you know, films. And I thought, wow, you know, if I could, you know, make films that kind of resemble that and, you know, are in that vein, 
But, you know, more than anything, I think the serial killers pre-1940 fascinated me because of the lack of forensics, you know, how long they got away with it, the lack of, um, you know, psychiatric, you know, care that was actually just beginning in America at that time period. You know, so you look at, you know, the history that's involved in, in the area where they lived and how they got away with it, plus the tried and true method of detective work that led to their capture. You know, now, of course, you see CSI and everything's wrapped up in 45 minutes to an hour on the show. Of course, it takes a little long. It does take longer than that in real life. But still, you know, you look at back then, fingerprinting was in its infancy. You know, um, blood typing was in its infancy in, the, in this country. You know, Paris and other countries were ahead of us, but it took some time to reach here. So, again, I think all those elements just make, for me, a much more fascinating story. Yes, people are fascinated by the more weird and unusual, you know, the serial killer, whether they're into cannibalism or vampirism. Yes, you know, that makes people are fascinated by those aspects as well. But for me, I think it was it's that pre-1940 and the fact that not many people have heard of these serial killers. You know, um, my film on Holmes, uh, surreptitiously, was coming out right at the same time that uh, Devil in the White City, and I had no idea that book was coming out. So, you know, that... The, the kind of two of them coming out together, you know, it just, you know, it, it was just mere happenstance. But again, I think, uh, you know, I think many people are interested in these early cases. They just don't know about them. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you hear about these things, I mean, it automatically makes you want to learn a little bit more. Um, something else you touched on was when Tony J signed on for the H.H. Holmes thing, you know, because he had done all the other voiceover work for Disney and things like that. The stigma, you know, people were asking him if he was worried about the stigma. What about for you, for this being your first film and uh, the thing that people are going to be, you know, uh, kind of associating you with? Was there a fear of that, you know, becoming the thing that you're known for, or were you just happy to do it? No, I was happy to do it because, in a, you know, the great thing about doing these serial killer films is they're, they're such, you know, a broad range. They cover so many topics, history, psychology forensics, law, um, and in the end, it's horror. You know, I do very well at horror conventions. You know, I go to Days of the Dead and uh, Flashback, uh, you know, many local and, uh, you know, national conventions, horror conventions, but then internationally, my stuff is shown at other, you know, horror uh, film festivals and conventions. So because there is that element of horror, obviously. So, you know, um, I didn't worry about it one bit. And, you know, when Holmes was released, I, you know, I was, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe that I was given the um, the best documentary um, award at Scream Fest. And I got to meet Stan Winston, you know, who was one of my idols. So, you know, working with Tony Jay, who was an idol of mine, meeting Stan Winston, you know, who designed the Terminator and Aliens and Jurassic Park Dinosaurs. You know, I mean, man, it was just, for me, it was a dream come true. So, again, I think, you know, I, I didn't worry about being stigmatized, and I could have branched off after H.H. Holmes, but I thought, wow, it was so popular. I think I'll move forward because I enjoy making them. If I could make these, you know, films kind of creepy, kind of like a narrative film or like a docudrama, but as a documentary with information, I think people could really be scared. And, you know, when Fish show, has shown several times, people have walked down, I thought, hey, I did my job. You know, if people are walking out, it worked, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, controversy sells. So yeah. um, speaking of controversy, I guess 
you know, that brings us to serial killer culture, and I touched on it earlier, but that that is one that, to me, that is extremely fascinating, because for the people that I talk about that uh, are, like, serial killer enthusiasts, things like that, those are the ones that watch your documentaries over and over again. You know, certain people watch it once, and they enjoy it. Um, more people than care to admit it watch documentaries and stuff like that all the time but you know only a certain class of society will admit that they're like an enthusiast for this type of thing I thought it was really cool that you explored that part of society and and kind of talked about something that we talk about every single month on this show when we talk about serial killers yes we're interested in them no we're not serial killers I mean how big of a topic is that every time you talk to somebody that's interested in this subject well, you know, and, and again, it's such uh, again broad variety of interests from all different types of people. You know, you have you know just you know, uh, you know maybe the working class folks that have heard about these stories. You know, sometimes you know if I go somewhere or visit somewhere, I'm a little hesitant, and they <clears throat> when I tell them what I do, they're a little off put. But it's only about a couple minutes because then when, once I start talking about H. H. Holmes and Albert Fish. They want to talk for hours. They don't want to stop. You know, and then there are other people, you know, obviously, you know, you have psychiatrists and law enforcement and and true crime historians, you know, and then you have people, you know, that, you know, some of these people are in serial killer culture. They're, you know, they work day jobs and and they're artists or that's their job as an artist and, and they're interested in the topic as well. They're fascinated by them. I think Everybody is fascinated by serial killers. It just depends on what level. You know, some people, you know, may not want to admit it in public, but they may read books on them. They may read, you know, watch these TV shows. And if you look at TV now, especially television, you know, it's such a high percentage of true crime. I mean, I would say it's probably like 70, 80% with OJ and CSI and all these shows, you know, that's murder, crime, serial killers, or, or you know, some aspect of that, you know, or, or horrific in that style. So, you know, again, I think it's something that everybody's interested in, you know, whereas me personally, I, I'm not a collector. The only thing I own is the letter that Keith Jesperson sent me, you know, but I have books on psychology, books on serial killers, books on the history of true crime. But, you know, I'm not a collector. I've never just, I've never been interested in that stuff. I may, the things I would like to collect would be like mug shots or, uh, you know, fingerprint charts, things like that. Those are fascinating to me, you know, like the research, the law enforcement research materials. But, uh, you know, believe me, there are so many people fascinated and interested in this topic. I mean, I've had, you know, kids, like literally grammar school children inter- interview me for their class projects on H.H. H. Holmes, you know, the, where there's history of Chicago. Because, again, I think, you know, I look at it as, you know, uh, serial killers should be studied because, you know, what do we do when children show signs of becoming psychopaths? There's actually a school now in Florida that is working with children that do show these signs that you could see in these children that, wow, they have this duality that they could be very frightening people when they turn into teenagers. You know, kind of like Jesse Pomeroy, when he was 12 years old in 1872, he was abusing other little boys and whipping them and stabbing them. And then he killed two little children in 1874 when he was 14 and they wanted to execute him. But the governor stepped in and they gave him, you know, life in solitary confinement, which was basically a living hell. So, again, you know, not many people, you tell these stories to people like, really? What? I've never heard of these. You know, they've heard of Birdman of Alcatraz, you know, a couple of the early, 
stories, the Boston Strangler, but, you know, some of these other ones. Like, I think Albert Fish is the worst of the worst that I've ever heard, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you know, and, and I know you want to talk about him, too. Oh, yeah, he's he's the most vile. I, I would agree with that 100%. But, you know, I, and I know most of the things about fish we could just look up, so I, I don't want to get specifically into fish. But one question about the serial killer culture aspect of it, um, just for you, because you're, you're not a collector, and I understand that. Um, I have to be honest with you, I'm not a collector either, and I don't look down upon, down my nose at people who are. It's one of those things where I'm a family man, and I feel like I can't be a collector. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it would be wrong of me to be a collector. Do you Do you inherently feel like it? I mean, you, it's almost like porn. You can't describe it, but it just feels wrong? Or is it just one of those things that just doesn't interest you? It just doesn't interest me. You know, like, I've been to, you know, obviously filming serial killer culture. I've been mm-hmm. to people's studios and homes and, you know, and seeing their collections and I'm fascinated by it. You know, I, I, you know, when I look around the walls where they have the stuff hanging, I mean, I just want to, you know, stare at it in detail for hours and, you know, look at the signatures and the artwork and think of the psychology behind it. You know, some people think there's bad mojo with paintings or things that serial killers had owned. You know, there's that stigma behind it. I've never really felt that way, but that's not, you know, I'm not really a superstitious person, but, um, you know, there is, there is that stigma attached to it. You're kind of right. It is kind of like porn that, you know, it, it, should be kind of, you know, talked away or, or hidden away. But, you know, I, I know a law enforcement officer that, you know, he has some paintings. He has a Gacy, he has several Gacy's, you know, and some others. You know, Stephen uh, Giannangelo, the author of Real Life Monsters, who's in, you know, um, serial killer culture, he owns some of those, you know, and, and he, he teaches a class on serial killers. So he presents the artwork to the students and talks about the psychology behind it. So, again, I think it depends on how you look at it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I again, I think many people would be fascinated, but not many people would want a Gacy painting in their home. And let's be realistic. You know, it does look like a five-year-old drew. I mean, his paintings are, <laughs> you know, they're not quality. I don't look at them and say, wow, you know, I have a painting, you know, on my wall by David Van Gogh, who, you know, he was in serial killer culture. I, I wound up buying the uh, Hilter Skelter painting that he did because to me it is just so beautiful and I look at it every day in my studio of course it's about the Manson murders and Sharon Tate's on it but the beauty behind it somebody would look at that and have no idea what it's about then when I start describing the objects and the references in it they're just fascinated by it so uh yeah I mean I don't know I mean I've always thought maybe I want to own a a pogo but it's like I don't know it's it's again if nobody knew that nobody knew who painted it they'd be like well why do you have a little kids painting on your wall (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really weird like it's one of those things where um you talked about having to put it away you know I don't mind explaining serial killers to my kids but I would have a hard time explaining why I own artwork by a serial killer I guess that's the thing that would be hard for me so yeah I think I think we're I think we're kind of in the same path there, but um, to talk about specifically the serial killers that you've done documentaries on, um, and and this isn't even just fish. We're we're talking about Pandram and H.H. Holmes, too. Do you, and I ask this question all the time of people, and generally I only ask it of the people that I know are comfortable with the question. So keep in mind when I ask this, I'm I'm saying it flip, but I don't mean it that way at all. do you have a favorite serial killer? And you know in which way I'm asking that question. I know. I ask, 
I ask people that too, and they ask me, and you know, it's it's kind of a tongue in cheek thing, you know, and it it's it's difficult because you know, I I think for me it is H H Holmes, you know, it'd probably be H H Holmes and then Ed Gein. Um, Again, because H. H. Holmes was such an evil genius in a sense, and you know, no other serial killer in history designed a building basically for disposing of human bodies. You know, and, and he had that. You know, I mean, he could have been such a great man. You know, it's just a shame that he went the wrong route. But I do talk that way to people. You know, it's like when I did serial killer culture, I received a embossed uh, card in the mail. And it wasn't handwritten on the cover. It was embossed. And what was embossed on the cover was, you made my fucking day. And then I opened it up, and it was a very eloquently written card by a young woman in her 20s in California that said, you know what? Before serial killer culture came out, I thought I was the only one interested in these, uh, you know, serial killers. And I thought I was weird and unusual. And thank you for putting the movie out, you know, because it shows me that there are other people interested in this as well. You know, and again, I think a lot of people, you know, feel like that. But again, it's kind of like you're saying with porn, it's not polite to talk about in, in, you know, conversation, but it depends on how you discuss it. You know, I mean, like I said, there's all different types of people. Some people might be, oh, yeah, you know, when they found all the blood at the scene, you know, for me, it's not about that. For me, it's about the psychology, What, what they went through as children, especially the formative years between seven and say, 13 years old, what they went through to make them become what they were at that time or even, you know, a little later in life. If you look at all of them, you know, all of these serial killers, there's something, you know, and when they were young, whether it's abuse or trauma, you know, it could be trauma that happened that, you know, made them interested in, in, you know, whether it's necrophilia or cannibalism or, you know, murdering as revenge, you know, and then some have, you know, different... Uh, you know, methods, you know, and, and reasonings behind it. Like Holmes was mainly financial. All of his murders were financially motivated. Pan's Ram was for revenge, or so he said, you know. But um, uh, again, it's, uh, it, it depends on how you approach it. I like to talk about the psychology and the history. And because the time period they lived in and maybe the, the locale they lived in helped them get away with that. Obviously, fish in New York in the 1920s, there were children playing on the streets everywhere. Well, it was like he was literally, I don't know if you want to make that analogy, but he was a kid in a candy store. Ha ha. But, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and I think these, I think these subjects are so, you know, uh, bleak that I think there, you have to find a little humor in them somehow, because in each of my films is a laugh somewhere. Like when Panzerim says, man, I was, doing sodomy so much I knew more than Oscar Wilde, you know, or when Fish is writing his nasty letters, they just build up to this nasty eating peanut butter and nasty stuff that you're almost laughing at the absurdity of it. But it did happen, you know. Um, so I try to do that too because I think in, in every bleak or dark film, you've got to try and have a little, you got to let the audience, you know, relax a little bit for a couple seconds. Yeah, it's almost like whenever you ask that question, you have to give a, a long disclaimer before you ask the question, right. which right. is why I said, I know you know what I'm talking about, so I don't have to get too deep into the disclaimer. But uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we keep getting into H.H. H. Holmes. He's actually my favorite as well, and it's probably because of your documentary. But, of course, I did a lot of other research on him after that. I talked to people like Ray Johnson, the history cop in Chicago, yes. Jeff yep. Budget, great-great-grandson. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. and they all have different opinions. Eric Larson has a different opinion as to numbers with H.H. H. Holmes. And I realize any one of us can research this and, and throw out our guesses. But you did research on it. 
Do you have you ever come up with a number that you feel like you know H H Holmes is responsible for, or hell for that for that matter, Pandram and Albert Fish also? Well, with Holmes, I, I I seem to side with Schechter where he says you know you could look at nine. When you look at the murders, the Peitzel family, you know his mistresses, you know when you, when you look at the the definitive murders that we could say yes he most likely did these, but we still don't know in a sense. You know, we would say probably at about nine, but, you know, who knows, dozens more, you know, hundreds more, we don't know. You know, I mean, he was a busy guy, so I don't know if it went into the hundreds, but he did have the crematorium and and the whole torture, you know, basement and, you know, the vats of acid and the quicklime vats and, you know, the vault. So who knows, you know, and the same thing, you know, with fish, it's even more of a mystery because he traveled all around the country painting houses and he had, he had these, you know, uh, abandoned houses that he was painting that he could have had any, but, and done anything he wanted to in them. So with him, it could be many too, but that's why I wanted to put the books out on Holmes and fish. You know, the Holmes book are the books from the primary source materials, the book Holmes wrote in prison called the strange my the book that I produced called the strange case of H Dr. H. H. Holmes. And it has the book He Wrote in Prison, Holmes' own story, the book um the detective wrote, Detective Geyer called the Holmes Pikes Case, a book called The Holmes Castle, written in eighteen ninety six by an author here in Chicago, and then Holmes's complete confession. And Fish's book contains all the uh well not all but many of the files that were recently opened six years ago, those were all of his uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Wortham, his files. So in the Fish book, there are even more confessions from Albert Fish and psychiatric reports. It has his Rorschach test where he sees everything as the penis of a young boy or an ass of a, you know, little child. So it makes sense, you know, when you're looking at these documents, you know, but with Panzeram, I'm going to release a book on him in the future too, but with Panzeram, I truly believe that he may have committed some murders, but I can truly only say he did one, you know, was that laundry foreman at Leavenworth. Because we have no mm-hmm. proof of the other ones, but we, we can't disprove them either. But personally, my take on it is I think Panzeram knew he was going to the first federal penitentiary, Leavenworth. So he knew he had to play himself up as a bad guy. So what other opportunity? Okay, I'll write my life story and I'll tell how bad of a guy I was. Yes, the majority of it was true. The research I did, he was in the jails. He was in the prisons. He was most likely raped as a hobo and, you know, abused in uh, the Red Wing, you know, the uh, the Christian, uh, you know, um, reform school that he was at when he was a child. Yes, those things probably happened. But, you know, I, I don't – I could approve, you know, I, I can't really definitively say that Panzeram was a serial killer. And that's why in my film, I spent a, a long time on his childhood, but then a lot on his life and then on Leavenworth too, and, and a little bit about the murders because we don't really know. You know, I, I agree with you too. I always felt like his, his, his writing was, was so interesting, but at the same time it felt forced in a way. I mean, really cool forced in a way that it was fun to read, but at the right. same time, it just felt like I was being told a story that maybe wasn't true. But it's still entertaining, that's for damn sure, and the documentary is as well. Um, uh, as far as as far as you know, some of these these people that we brought up earlier, like of Vlad the Impaler, uh, we actually did a podcast on Elizabeth Bathory. Um, yeah. Have you ever thought about doing any documentaries on, on these ones that are even longer in the past? You know, than these notorious people from I mean, ancient history. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. You know, maybe you know, maybe I'll go back in time rather than further ahead in time. You know, I mean, Gildy Ray is one that fascinates me, and he's very. His story is very similar to Elizabeth Bathory, almost exact. You know, they were both noble people. You know, they both, uh, you know, sent their servants to bring them children to, you know, uh, or, 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 you know, or had servants that they would kill and, and mutilate and, you know, very, very similar stories. But Gilda Ray was, of course, a male, you know, and his story fascinates me as well. You know, I interviewed recently uh, the author Kim Craft. You know, she did a book on That's who we had. Bathory. Yeah, that's who we yeah, had on. We love Kim Craft. She's oh, awesome. she's she's phenomenal. You know, and now, of course, I tell everybody the truth that I you know learned from her. But you know, some people like the urban legends. You know, they want to believe that she bathed in blood. You know, even though mm-hmm. when you think about it, it's most likely impossible to fill a bathtub. You know, how many? It's like uh, Kim Craft said. Well, you'd have to. How many people would that take? You know, a lot of victims. You know, so. Um, it's interesting, you know, that people want to, you know, they still want to believe that the Deedles and Albert Fish shorted out the electric chair, even though I have proof from his executioner who wrote a book that said nothing unusual happened. People still want to believe that happened. So I, I come up against that sometimes, you know, when I'm on Facebook or other social media sites that people want to believe the urban legend, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be fascinated. I'd love to do some of those early stories of, you know, either Vlad or, I mean, I think I would probably start with Gilda Ray because he's the most fascinating to me. Do, do you, um, yeah, you, you talked about that, but in uh, in terms of, you know, other possible subjects, are you are you looking, like, with the other three to go, people, uh, go with people that are maybe a little away from the mainstream, or do you still have that Dahmer in the back of your mind or, you know, some of the big names? Well, if anything, you know, like with Dahmer, I would like to do a feature film because I still don't feel that they've created a film. The early film that starred Carl Crew, um, The Secret Life of Jeffrey Dahmer, I think that was the best, in my opinion. You know, it was a low budget, but I think it was the best one. But none of the other films, I feel, have captured, you know, who he was and what, what he went through personally and what he actually lived with. You know, they would allude to it, but I think you do have to get graphic to kind of show this. Obviously, you don't have to show him having sex with a corpse, but there are ways if you're a creative filmmaker to go about it. You know, and even more interesting to me than Dahmer is Dennis Nilsson, who was like the, you know, the uh, the UK contemporary of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. He was like the British Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, who would, he would put the dead bodies under the floorboards in the dirt where he lived on the first floor and he would pull them out at night and put them in the bathtub and wash them and watch TV with them and talk to them, you know, and then when he moved to a second floor apartment, that's when he had to start cutting the bodies up. And that's how he was discovered because he would boil their body parts, dump the flesh down the toilet bowl and they got backed up in the system and in the sewers. And then one day he came home and there are cops there. And the first thing he said was there's another body in the closet. You know, he had another one right there in the closet. So it becomes this, you know, uh, you know, almost like a, uh, you know, an obsession, you know, a, an addiction for them, especially with Dahmer and Nelson. But, you know, I'm, I am, I've got some projects in the works now. I'm working on a book, um, uh, several, uh, several other documentaries and then a feature film, too. And, you know, I do want to move towards feature films because that was my goal. And when you watch my documentaries, you see that style. It's very much like a narrative feature film docudrama style 
Um, you know, I still love, I enjoy making documentaries, but I'd like to be a little bit more artistic, you know, with feature films and uh, the ideas I have for those. So like a Dahmer, I would do probably as a feature film. But um, if anything, you know, I think I would probably move back prior to H.H. H. Holmes, you know, like Jesse Pomeroy, Gildy Ray, some of those early serial killers. So gun to your head right now, if you if somebody had to say cast Jeffrey Dahmer, can you think of somebody off the top of your head that you think could play the role? Oh, that that's a really tough call. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, that is so difficult. You know, a lot of times, you know, I, I go on IMDb and I do searches when I think of things like that. But, you know, it, again, it would have to be somebody quiet and meek. You know, it's like, you know, I, I know when they did, and it's kind of the same thing with Ed Gein, that the first early film, uh, Deranged, was, I feel, the best one because the other ones never really had a feel for me of what Gein went through. You know, he lived on this you know, farm isolated in the middle of nowhere, you know, and basically lived in a room with no heat, no gas, no electricity. And imagine, you know, people from the Midwest, we know Wisconsin, we know what winters are like, and we know how bad it gets. They never even explored that in the Gein movies. It's like, this was his world, but of course they shot them all in LA. So, you know, there's not, there's not going to be snow there. It was like the, the one Gacy film, I forget which one it was, they had, it was supposed to take place here in Illinois, and they had mountains in the background. And it's like, really? How can you let that go? I mean, you're making a feature film. Can't somebody on this crew say, ah, we see the mountains? You know? It's like, mm-hmm. that possible. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. I, I agree 100%. It, it's just too bad. And it's really odd to me that I don't know if it's because it's a taboo subject, but most of these serial killers, you may get like a um, a great homage, like from Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, or you right. know. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, but how right. many really good like movies are there out there about these guys? Is it a fear of sensationalism, or what is it? I think they just want to, you know, push it through, you know, to to make the money. You know, they're they're low budget films, and I don't, I just I just don't know if they care. You know, it's like I know it's weird to say, but I care about. I mean, it's I care about my art, and my films, but I also care about their stories as well because I think serial killers are souls in torment just as much. You know, they're suffering just as much as they made the victims. They have to. I mean, the things they go through. Yes, they receive pleasure from this, but what they have to live through on a daily basis, what they've done, and what they've been through as a child to come to this point. You know, and I think maybe a lot of them are just seeking death to to get it over with, to get out of this world because. You know, it's such a miserable existence for them. Um, so I don't know why they, you know, they they really, I, again, I think those films are just kind of pushed through the system. They want to do them as quick as possible, and any attention to detail or truth is just thrown out the window, which is a shame because these are true stories. You know, and the great ones aren't even based on serial killers, like uh, real serial killers, like Seven. Um, mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs. I mean, you know, Buffalo Bill was based on several different, you know, real life serial killers. Three of them, you know, Gein, uh, Gary Heidnick, and um, Ted Bundy. But still, it wasn't based on their stories exactly. So the best serial killer movies aren't the ones based on real serial killers. You know, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, you know, was loosely based on Otis Tool, but. Still, it was, you know, kind of a great film. So I think that's very interesting. And I think, you know, you'd have to get somebody like me who's passionate behind these stories, you know, and attention to detail. I mean, I research the hell out of these things. I read every book. I read all the case files, everything I can, you know, to try and get in their head. So if somebody came to me and said, you know, like, for instance, when uh, 
years ago when Holmes first came out, they, we had a screening at the University of Indiana, and they had the screenwriter at that time. The history of The Devil in the White City, Tom Cruise had the rights to the book first. And then Leonardo DiCaprio bought the rights. Well, when Tom Cruise had the rights, Paramount had hired a screenwriter, the uh, screenwriter Christopher Kyle of K-19, The Widowmaker. He had written some other films. So the day they screened my film, he wasn't present. The next day I met him, and I said, well, what happened? You should have came to my film. He said, no, Paramount Pictures is afraid of you. They will not let me watch your movie. And I was like, really? Me? Little old, you know, <laughs> little old guy, independent filmmaker? Well, it makes sense because then if something appeared in their film version, I could sue them, whatever, even though it's a public domain story. But still, he told me that in his version, they had fictionalized it to where Holmes was throwing bodies around the World's Fair. But see, I know these characters and these people so well, Holmes wasn't that stupid. He was much more intelligent than that. He wouldn't be that, you know... It, you know, foolish to dump bodies where people could find them. He he covered up all of his crimes. You know, the one time that he was caught for was because he didn't pay Marion Hedgepath, you know, the $500 that he owed him. But all the other times, he covered up everything. He was highly intelligent. So, again, I think that if somebody shows me a script that's based on one of these serial killers, I could say, no, nah, he would never do this, you know, because I know them so well, in a sense. And, and on top of that, you know, you talked about the passion you have for it. You talked about all those things for research and things like that. It, it's really interesting you said that because I was um, just about to ask you, when, when you're doing these documentaries, do you become like kind of like a psychiatrist slash um, investigator slash all sorts of other things while you're putting this together? I mean, because you're more than just a filmmaker at that point. Yeah, I mean, I wear all the hats pretty much. I mean, I hire people like a composer and actors and you know, for reenactments and those aspects. But the majority of time I'm working on my own. I edit the films on my own. I write them. Um, you know, I've, I've done the posters well, other than serial killer culture. You know, I, I, so I, I, I usually have my hand in everything or I do a lot of the work, but it, it is, it truly is. I mean, you know, for instance, I went to New York State Archives to try and find the mugshot of Carl Panzram, the one before he went to uh, Sing Sing where he had the bow tie, you know, he was all dressed up because he had a tuxedo on after he had stole all the money from Taft, you know, and he had a boat. So that's what, after they caught him, he was wearing this tuxedo. I could, couldn't find that in New York State Archives. So then years later, I knew I had to go to Oregon, you know, historical for some of the photos there. I knew they had the Oregon photos of him. So then I messaged them. They said, okay, we'll scan the mugshot for you and send it. When the first scan I got had, it looked like the back of two mugshots. And then the next scan was the front. And for some reason, I guess at that time period, they would send the actual mugshots back and forth between, you know, uh, the police, you know, districts or whatever. Well, they had in Oregon, they had that Sing Sing mugshot from New York. After all my years of searching, I couldn't find it. And there it was. It came to me. You know, and it, it is weird because I never let go. It's like if I hear there's something, you know, I found the Saturday evening post that supposedly had a picture of him. All these things, if these things exist, I'll find them. You know, I found the Murder Castle record of H.H. H. Holmes, the Lights Out show, the old-time radio show. I still have that. You know, all of these things. I research every single thing that I can. And then finally when I say, okay, I, I, I think I've, I've found everything I can, then it's, then it's time to, you know, write the script and 
find the interviewees and move forward with the next steps. But the research is a constant process because sometimes these films take years to make, and I'll get emails from people saying, hey, I have something, or I'm a relative of the serial killer, I'm a descendant, or whatever the case is. So, you know, and that's why it's kind of good that the films take a little longer because when I put them out there on the Internet, people will contact me. There was a gentleman in Australia when I was making H.A. Poems. He sent me his entire collection of books and magazines, you know, sent it to me just, you know, on trust, and I sent them back to him when I was done researching. There was a, a collector of scalpels, antique scalpels on eBay. You know, they were astronomically expensive. I messaged him, you know, I told him what I was doing. He said, you know what, I just won the bid. I'll send you these scalpels. Just pay the shipping and send them back to me when you're done using them in the movie. You know, so lucky, you know, incidents like that come about. So, but it is, it's a ton of, ton of research, a ton of, you know, writing and, and, you know, dead ends. And, and again, trying to sift through those urban legends too, because supposedly the big thing about Carl Panzram is his last words were, you know, hurry up to the hangman, hurry up you Hoosier bastard. I could have hung a dozen while you're fooling around. Well, the writers got those two lines from Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, who was in a cell across from Panzram. Now, Robert Stroud's writing only said, hurry up, you cocksucker. I think that, I mean, that was it. He didn't even say I could hang a dozen men while you're fooling around. So the book kind of made up that last line, I could hang a dozen men while you're fooling around. I have never seen that line anywhere in all the books, magazines. I have newspaper reports that say not a word was said on the gallows. Then I have Warden White, who was the warden at Leavenworth at that time. He says, Carl Panzram says, I'm glad you're all here watching me because I heard when I hang, I'm going to take a dump in my pants and I want to crap on you and I want to crap on the whole world. That sounds more like Panzram to me, but who do you believe? You know, That's why I'm like, okay, for Panzram, I'm like, well, let's just put the urban legend in at the end of the movie because it would have taken me 15 minutes to explain why I don't think his last words were his last words. You know, but that's for the book, you know. Yeah, that's that's really difficult, I would think. But uh, another thing that we were talking about earlier was casting, you know, um, and Tony Jay, of course, how awesome he was in his roles. But another one that I, I always stood out for me and I just thought was fantastic, hell of a job casting, DiMaggio as Pandram, the voice. So good. Talk about that. Yeah, he was great. You know, every time I'm looking for voices, I'm very lucky that I'm an avid video game player because uh, most of the voice talent now, the best voice talent is in video games because you have movies, but the Tony J would always tell me, John, they're going with celebrities for these animated films when they don't need to. They don't need Whoopi Goldberg and Chris Rock. Nobody knows. The kids don't know who these voices are. You need voice talent, and that's why Tony J. When that started happening, he wasn't getting as much work, even though he was the best in the business. So he would, you know, gripe to me about that all the time. We would go to lunch, and I, I told him, I know, I know what you're going through, you know. So when I played video games, I always listened to voices, and I knew I needed a gruff, you know, deep voice, you know, someone that would exemplify what Panzram's character was like. And I played Gears of War, and. Uh, Joe, uh, John, Dima- Joe DiMaggio. John DiMaggio, he was the main character in that, a Marcus Phoenix. You know, and I, of course I had heard him in Futurama as Bender the Robot, but that wasn't the style. When I tell people, 
it's Bender the robot. They're like, what? He, why would he read in Bender's voice as a serial killer? You know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to hear his stuff because he's very eclectic. And when we were, we were recording him, you know, on the DVD, the extras, he would go from character to character. You know, he was just amazing. So, you know, and again, it was great that he agreed to do it. And, you know, I know he got tired doing it because what, what I do is when I record, I always record more because I like to have more, obviously, as an editor, just in case I need it. And there were times where he'd be, oh, man, I need a break. This is like an audio book, <laughs> you know, because he read it all. You know, he was reading, like, all of, almost all of Panzerham's writings. But, you know, again, he was, you know, phenomenal. He fit it perfectly. And, and again, you know, I don't, we don't have Panzeram or we haven't heard his voice. So it's, it's about me trying to bring that character to life through his voice and then the, in combination with the visuals. Talk about uh, working with the archivist a little bit, uh, you know, when you're dealing with some of that old subject matter or old newspapers, things like that, because I actually talked to one of the archivists that was involved in the Panzerium documentary on our show, and we did a podcast on it, and, you know, he talked about all the things involved with it. For you in that role, what's it like dealing with people like that? Kim Kraft talked about it a little bit, but we're talking about a whole other country where she was dealing with yeah, yeah, I know her story. That was really difficult. Um, usually, it, it it depends. You know, I mean, um, usually historical societies, you know, that's their job. They're very amenable to it. I, I did get lucky at times, like I said, with the Panzerian mugshot. And then when I was researching Holmes, Library of Congress, when I had contacted them, they said, well, you know what? We just got in a whole, you know, shipment of Pinkerton archives that were cataloging. They're not ready yet, but see, I was still making the film. So I, I, you know, I'd asked them to contact me when everything was archived. And and of course they had, you know, the mugshot of H.H. Holmes and some other files, you know, when they had taken this mugshot, the Pinkerton detectives. So sometimes there are lucky accidents. Sometimes you come across things, you know, you kind of hope. And again, people are interested in this subject. So you kind of hope that you come across an archivist who is, you know, interested or wants to help you because you don't want to come up against a brick wall. Because when I did go to New York State Archives, I was trying to find if they had any photos of the uh, tattoo that Panzerim had, the Liberty and Justice. And they did have boxes of inmate tattoos. But when I get, when I arrived there, much of what I requested, I requested boxes of research material ahead of time. When I arrived, they gave me a piece of paper and restricted was written next to dozens of these boxes. And I'm like, um, isn't this a public archive? Why am I restricted? And they wouldn't even really tell me. I think it was because of the subject. You know, when you're researching, especially with Carl Panzram, that doesn't really show the prisons and jail institutions in a good light. If anything, it's going to show them in a bad light. So they may know about this, you know, and they may not want to be a part of that negative history. So, you know, sometimes you you come up against some apprehension, but, you know, usually it's a lot of luck and perseverance. You know, again, I now, and the the internet has just made everything just uh, amazing that you could just do searches and and find links to things. And, you know, that's the internet has really, you know, brought me in touch with many people, family members. You know, when H.H. Holmes was released, I had checks from Peitzels and Mudgets that were buying my film, you know, and it was just freaky and weird. Yeah, I mean, just all, all the things surrounded by uh, surrounding these films are really interesting to me. One of the people that are most interesting, and I'm 
you know, kind of name dropped him earlier. It was Joe Coleman. He's a fascinating guy to me, and you know, he obviously would probably be most uh, associated with the serial killer culture documentary. But he was sprinkled throughout uh, a couple of the other ones. So talk a little bit about him. Uh, I think he's a fascinating guy to most people. Yeah, he is. I mean, you know, everything about him, you know, uh, even to what he wears, every, you know, for every interviews, he wears this Confederate um, outfit uniform. But on, on on the chest of the uniform, on the vest, are all these little trinkets. Well, what they are, they're all part, parts of his life. You know, there's a part of his wife's uh, locket of his wife's hair. There's a mummified paw from one of his cats that he had. All, all, you know, and again, if you just look at his vest, it's just fascinating, let alone his works. Because, you know, he paints with one hair on a paintbrush and it takes months to do these works. And now he's doing even life-size ones. He did him and his wife, Whitney. Um, you know, again, just phenomenal. And just, you know, he's a really kind, you know, man. And I like the way that, you know, he kind of studies, you know, the uh, serial killers from, you know, a different perspective. You know, it's really his perspective about Albert Fish that made me think about, you know, what Albert Fish was going through with his religious dimension and his religious complex. Because Joel Coleman, you know, believed that Fish truly believed these biblical tales and, and wanted to bring them to life and by sending these virgins to heaven and, you know, drinking blood and associating it with communion and the flesh of Christ. You know, and, and he brings about these different perspectives. I call him, you know, the philosopher of serial killers because he's not going to take a textbook example of and describe what Albert Fish or Panzram are like, or Ed Gein. You know, he sees Ed Gein as a shaman, you know, somebody like these tribes in Africa that would be the cannibals, or, or they would collect body parts or, or you know, uh, parts from their enemies. So, you know, he, he's, he's highly intelligent to know history as well as, you know, these subjects. And, you know, his place is just phenomenal. His auditorium, he has, first time I went there, you know, he had a Mexican bandit's head, in formaldehyde and I mean just all kinds of strange unusual stuff and well when I interviewed him for Panzeram he had a vial of Nixon's blood and then when I asked him where he gets these things he says a ma- magician never reveals their secrets <laughs> you know? so he's, he's, he's a mystery and a character and uh, just phenomenal you know he had uh, it, I think it's an Albert Fish you know it, it's like it looks like a little um, uh, Catholic uh, symbol. It's, it looks, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's not a cross, but in the middle of it, there's like a, a little scab. And he said, see that? That's a piece of Jesus Christ. And I said, really? And I, and I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, it's not if you know it, it's if you believe it is. <laughs> you know? And he's he's kind of like the sideshow Barker, the Fiji mermaid, you know, that some of these things are, you know, he knows their gags and gaps, but you know, he also knows reality. I mean, he wrote to many of these serial killers and, you know, Gacy painted the painting of him and, uh, you know, Gacy as Pogo. And again, you know, just phenomenal. And I like his philosophy of the serial killer. Yeah, he, he's just an interesting guy all around. You know, a lot of people would just look at him and say, he's a weird guy and write him off. But once you listen to what he has to say, he's definitely fascinating. Oh, um, Definitely. You know, he had those opportunities to correspond with these serial killers and, and things like that. Now, I've never known, I always thought, you know, if I could write to the serial killer, what could I say? And I've never been able to figure out what the hell I would say. That's why I've never written to anybody in prison, because I just don't know what I would say. 
Now for you, you, you've explored these subjects extensively. If you could pick one serial killer, it could be Holmes or whoever, that you could sit in a room with, obviously protected, and ask some questions to, who would it be and what would you ask? I think, uh, well, I am writing now to Keith Jesperson, the happy face killer, because finally after, you know, he wrote me in 2011, I finally wrote him this year, five years later, you know, and he started a letter response saying, oh, it's been a while, you know, how are you? I'm fine. You know, and then he said, oh, if you want to come to visit me, I have time. <laughs> it's kind of funny in a way. Again, it's tongue in cheek. It's like, of course you have time. What, are, what else do you have to do? You know what I mean? So, you know, I started writing him because he wants me to make a documentary on his life. But above anyone of the ones I've studied, I'd like to have a beer with Carl Panzerim. I think, you know, because, you know, when, when Panzerim wrote about the realities of the world, you know, he wasn't just bitching. I think, you know, there are a lot of truths in that. I think, you know, even now, you know, these things haven't changed. You know, they're, you know we see facades of people, you know, in, in all walks of life, law enforcement, uh, religion, you know, that use, you know, uh, you know, and again, it's not all, I'm not saying across the board, but, you know, there are bad people out there too that, you know, it, whether they're a doctor or a priest or a police officer can use that to their advantage. And serial killers have done that too. They've mimicked, you know, police officers. But, you know, Carl Panzram wrote about the realities of the world. Sure, I think he lied a little and made some things up, but when you read his whole story, you know, he really you know, had a pulse on what was going on with humanity and the truth of, you know, the hypocrisy of what people could ultimately be. Again, not everybody, but he, for him, it was across the board because of everything he had went through. But I think, again, I think it would just be interesting just to sit down with him and talk to him about his life travels and what he'd been through and, you know, hear him bitch and gripe about, you know, how bad life is. I think it would be interesting. But again, I, you know, and that's the reason why I am against the death penalty, because I think, you know, imagine if H.H. H. Holmes wasn't executed at 34 years old, we may not have learned anything about him. He may have lied for the rest of his life. But what if there were things that we might have learned from him? You know, it's no wonder why the FBI, you know, interviewed all these serial killers and, and created profiling. It was, it was, you know, profiling was because they interviewed all of these serial killers, you know, from Ted Bundy on. And if they didn't have them there, if they were all executed, they wouldn't be able to profile. They may have been, but it was because of sitting down with these, you know, when serial killers can be forthright, like Dahmer, like, um, you know, uh, I can't think of, there was another one, but, uh, you know, when they can be forthright and say, oh, like, um, what's his name? I'm trying to blank. The co-ed killer, um, the tall guy, uh, you know. Yeah, Ed Kemper, you know, and he was truthful. You know, when, when these people are truthful, then I think you could get information from them and learn from them. Yeah, I, I agree with that, you know, absolutely. These guys are, I mean, you could sit there with a Bundy and get bullshit all day long, but sitting there right. with, you know, one of these one of these guys who will actually talk to you, I mean, it's invaluable. Um, it's just the things that we never got from a lot of these guys in the old days, which makes your documentaries that much more interesting to me. And to get back onto the, uh, I've always said this about yours, there's an artsy quality to yours, whereas when you, you can look up all of these different documentaries on YouTube from different people, and most of them just read like a news report. Whereas yeah. yours, you know, there is a film quality to that. Um, you know, is there any one of those that that you felt like would have translated well to film? I mean, H.H. H. Holmes looks like it's heading that way, obviously. We talked about that earlier. But 
other than that, did you think Pandram would have made a good film? I, I know there's things out there, but certainly not on that level. Yeah, I mean, I think any of them. I had written, after H.H. H. Holmes, I had moved to L.A. because it was my intention to make a feature film on Albert Fish, and I still have the script. You know, and and there was a film, you know, that was out, I think, called The Great Man. I still haven't seen it, but, you know, I I, I don't know how, you know, good it is. But, um, you know, I think they, again, I think if you have the passion, the history, and the true story there, you don't have to fictionalize it. Holmes' story, you don't have to fictionalize because it's fascinating in itself. You know, so I, I think if they stick with the true story and, and are passionate about it and really want to bring about not only what the victims felt, but also what the serial killer felt, and what they went through, I think, you know, any of these films would make a great feature film. Hey, I asked you earlier about um, whether they're one of the reasons why they uh, don't do bigger budget films on these guys is because they're afraid to sensationalize it. How hard is that to, I mean, is it one of those things that you're actively trying to avoid when you're doing these documentaries is sensationalizing what they did? Or is it one of those things where, you know, you just have to tell the story and it, however it comes out, it comes out. Yeah. I just try to have, you know, an objective view. I just, I want to tell their story without, you know, again, without any type of sensationalism. That's why I don't really, you know, concentrate you know on the victim story too much because again i'm trying to put the serial killer's life under magnifying glass and figure out why they did what they did um so that's that's really it it's kind of walking that line between you know history and not making it you know boring like you're saying i don't just want it to be a talking head in a photo a talking head in a photo you know because that's how H.H. H. Holmes was when I had first created it. You know, I had thought, well, you know, if I'm watching this, I'm going to want to see some of the inside of the building or the castle or the basement. You know, okay, yeah, they may be reenactments, but still, if you could have that feeling there, why not, you know, and create it more interesting? You know, I, some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people say they're cheesy. Some people love the reenactments. But again, I think... I have to look at these things too and say, if I, you know, if I wanted to watch a film like this, what would I want to see? And and I would want to be entertained in the end. You know, it's like when I make these films, you know, whether they're an hour or 90 minutes or two hours, I want it to almost be like the people are holding their breath and at the end they can finally release and be like, wow, that was a journey. Let's watch it again. You know? And, and you know, you don't need the critical uh, opinion from me, but I'll give you the critical opinion just because it's that aspect of it the you know the live action reenactment part of it um they, especially in homes to me that gives it more of a rewatch value not just a watch value you can watch all these documentaries once and be happy but there's a reason why i've watched these over and over again as opposed to just once and shelving it uh it's because of those things so i agree with you 100 percent. i think it was a good you know, artistic decision on your part. So just wanted to tip my hat to you on that. And I also want to tip you. my hat to you for an hour of solid show. So I really appreciate that. John, uh, I want you to just sell some DVDs and sell some books. So uh, I hadn't given you the opportunity yet. So can you throw out the website and everything else where uh, people can pick up those things? Yeah, all of my films have their own websites, but the hub is my site, johnborowski.com, or if you just even type serial killer documentary, serial killer filmmaker, they're all going to come up. They're, you know, they're streaming. They're on, a couple are on Netflix now. Some are on Hulu. They're on Google Play. Um, I sell them off my sites. They're on uh, DVD. Um, so, yeah, yeah, they're out there. Uh, there are two books out, four documentaries, and I'm 
hopefully going to have another couple more this year. And, you know, let's have me on. I'd love to be on again. If you'd love to have me on, we could talk more about my future works and Bloodlines, the uh, Vincent Castiglia documentary, too. You don't even have to ask me to come on again. Anytime that you're available, you got it, buddy. Anytime. Cause, uh, I'll yeah, make time. Let's, let's uh, you know, let's do that. So, anyway, John, you're the man. I really appreciate it. Again, we'll talk in line when you're free on a Monday. Let's do it. Thanks, Travis. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, John. Have a good one. Everybody, that was a documentary filmmaker and soon to be, uh, hopefully, like feature film filmmaker, beyond just the documentary aspect. I don't I don't want to just use that tag on him anymore because what he does is a hell of a lot better than any kind of a documentary I've seen. I mean, there are documentaries out there that are great. History Channel comes to mind for, like, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You know, that's awesome. They've got reenactments and things like that. But, I mean, as far as people doing what he does, he's in a class all his own. And, and you know, that's not me kissing his ass. We've done three shows uh, and two of the three were really based on his documentaries. The H.H. H. Holmes one would have never existed had we not seen that documentary, had I not seen that documentary, um, America's First Serial Killer. Uh, the Pandram one definitely wouldn't have ever taken place had I not seen The Spirit of Hatred and Vengeance. And then Fish, we kind of knew about Fish because Gabby had talked about it. Gabby used to come on the show from time to time. Gabby talked about Albert Fish a lot, how fascinated she was with him because he was such a sick bastard, let's be honest one of the most vile serial killers in history. We talked about him last week. Um, But, yeah, John put together three great documentaries and then some, and one of those is serial killer culture also, on top of those, that kind of talks about the people who collect Gacy paintings, the people who collect artifacts from Charles Manson, who who sends them to them or who they buy from, whatever it may be. Um, It's just a different... It's a different type of person... And it's the type of person that we talk about probably every month on the show whenever we talk about art, um, serial killer art, you know, Death Row Art Show on Facebook is dedicated to that. So a lot of good things to say about John Borowski. And I don't just say it because he came on the show because I've been saying good things about him for the better part of 15 months. So hopefully everybody enjoyed that and kind of got some perspective on what it's like to do a documentary about one of these guys. And again, I, I think it's really interesting and really cool i've probably used interesting about a hundred times tonight but it it fascinates me that he went with the serial killers that he went with if you consider pandram a serial killer i still do until proven otherwise which won't ever happen so i just classify him you know on our website you see it it's real life monsters serial killers whatever the other title is but um pandram is just one of those guys that was just such a such a, a crazed person. I don't know what he did and what he didn't do for sure, but you know he was interesting. Uh, and there's 501 for the night, but you know that's what happens when I'm drinking Bud Light and I'm going solo. So uh, to get into some upcoming events, I will let you all know next week. I don't have a plan yet, but I will come up with a plan. Uh, I have to get, tell you guys a funny story, so. When you see Vic on Twitter, at Vic Von Eric, there's my plug for Vic's Twitter, make sure to give him shit because he messages me this morning, okay, and he says, hey, I'm on vacation, which is true. Vic's on vacation. And he said, you know, I figure since I'm on vacation, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, uh, take the show off tonight. And I'm like, dude, how can you take off a show that you haven't been on in like a month anyway? 
It's true. He wasn't on the last two shows. So if you if you see Vic on Twitter and you feel like giving him hell, feel free to because Vic deserves every bit of it. Um, and I gave him just as much shit. Uh, but next week, I don't know what we'll talk about. i tell you this. Um, I, I'm going to talk to myself about this. You guys can just listen to this. I have, you know, been enjoying some more Shudder. I watched 1973, The Crazies, by George A. Romero, the man. I've seen the remake. I have not seen the original up until now. I actually own a lot of Romero's old movies, and I'm not just talking Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. I'm talking like Knight Riders and um, whatever the hell the vampire movie is. I don't remember. It's not that great. Um, but there's there's several Romero movies that most people don't even know exist. But I own those, but I had never owned The Crazies because it was out of print. So I got to watch it on Shudder, and um, I enjoyed it. It was not what I expected because I've seen the remake. The remake's probably more like um, 28 days later or 28 weeks later. But The Crazies, you know, it was good. I give it three out of four machetes. I also watched um, Cannibal Pharaoh, and I have no idea how that's pronounced. F-E-R-O-X, I think. Uh, maybe F-E-R-O-U-X. Anyway, kind of a Hannibal Ho- or Cannibal Holocaust ripoff. It came out a year after, and uh, it's Italian, and it also has disgusting scenes of animals getting killed, just like Cannibal Holocaust. Um, but the cannibal par- portions of it didn't disgust me, although a guy did, did his dick cut off, so that was pretty gross. Um, but the um, Actually, a couple of guys got their dicks cut off. So, you know, people that say that Hostel was the one that came up with shit like that. Now, this stuff was going on way before that. So, um, I like that one, too. Three out of four for that one. I'm trying to think what else I watched. I watched Dead Hooker in a Trunk. In that movie, it had its moments, but overall, eh. I wasn't that impressed. Two and a half out of four. Don't go out of your way to watch it. best thing about that movie is the title. Um, you know, it's... It's not a horror movie. I don't know how that could even be classified as a horror movie. And I guess maybe it's a dark comedy, but it wasn't that funny. I mean, it had its moments again, but it wasn't anything that special. So trying to think if there's anything else I watched. That's all I can think of for now. I did watch, of course, the H.H. Holmes and Pandram documentaries again. Still love them. Still think they're awesome. I was busy battling with my internet in the basement and I was watching my Netflix. Uh, when I say internet, I'm talking about the wired connection, not the Wi-Fi. I was able to watch them on Wi-Fi. Um, but yeah, that's about it for me this week. Um, I haven't watched anything beyond that, but I most certainly will on Shutter since I have those free trials going. Shit, I've got like four Facebook accounts. I might as well take advantage of them. Um, so I'm just trying to get through the movie queue on there. There's some other ones I want to watch, like Monster Brawl, which is probably going to suck, but I'll still give it a shot. Um, but next week, I'll probably think of something from Shudder or something I own to come up with. You know, I'm more than happy to listen to your suggestions. Tweet us at Travis or Travinvic, Horror, H-O-R-R-O-R. You can message us on Facebook, Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. I'm on Twitter, at PhenomenalTLD. Going solo, as always. Um, and then, uh, let's see, we're on Periscope sometimes, but not all that often, because Vic's a, a recluse. Uh, but yeah, that's about all I got for this week. And, uh, oh, also, big announcement. May 16th, we're back on Blog Talk Radio. So, the bigger audience comes back to us on Filling the Void Radio Network. 
this was the network that we were originally on, and they pissed us off because that's me throwing beer bottle. Because um, when we were doing the our first, we were trying to do our Bun, Bundy podcast, and it went to shit because of Blog Talk Radio. Apparently, they have all the kinks worked out. So we're giving them another shot. I mean, we're not paying for it, so we'll give it a shot. Talk Show is still here for us if we need it. But beyond that, don't have a lot more to uh, share with you all this week. I will most certainly be back next week. Who knows if Vic will be here. It's possible, I guess. Um, But again, feel free to give him as much shit as humanly possible if you see him on the Twitter or the Facebook. In the meantime, I will see you fuckers next week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Later. Hey, who's who's from Colorado on the show? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.